be damned if the same politicians who refuse to act then are going to try to come back today. The real content of any kind of revolutionary thrust lies in the, in, in the principles and the goals that you're striving for. When the powerful use their position to bully others, we all lose. A system of justice will be the richer for diversity of background and experience. Correction! She's a woman! Oh, I don't usually say and correction first. I think usually just You don't? Go, yeah, I usually just go, she's a woman. Oh, okay. Well, yeah. you know. But you're in that mood today, so... Yeah, I'm in that <laughs> mood. Okay, moving the mic so it's close to you, too. I guess I could lean forward instead of lounging about. Well, I like when you lounge about. Because okay. it's like, we're chilling here, <laughs> we're having a nice little story time. Yeah, okay. Okay, here we go. <clears throat> she's a woman! Hello, everybody. It's me, Miss Cracker. I'm here with my co-pilot, Caitlin. Hello. That's you. And it's time for She's a Woman. It's a podcast for every human being who looks into the mirror and says, She's a woman! And for the people who love them. Every week, we talk to incredible people of all kinds from all walks of life and invite them to share their stories with you, our incredible listeners, and that's what we're going to do today. Hello, Caitlin. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm having some coffee, so I, I'm happy. Yeah, I yeah. know. <laughs> I feel like every time we start a podcast, it's like a check-in. Like, is it cold outside? Is there coffee? Yeah. And if it's those mm. things, then we're fine. Yeah. So today I was sort of thinking in the shower, which is like my think tank, if you will. <laughs> I was like, what am I going to do when... The world opens up. What's the first thing I'm going to do, especially in New York, when everything opens up? And I was wondering what your thing is that you would do. There are two things I was thinking. Oh my goodness. So first of all, I would go see a Broadway show. Okay. I would go see Company on Broadway, which they haven't closed. Yeah. So hopefully when it opens up, I can go see it. But really, I would go see any Broadway show because I miss live theater so much there's nothing that replaces it weird random like stand-up theater in the park is not the same thing <laughs> i really miss live theater so i would do that and then my second one is i would go to sweet bar uptown and i would invite all of like our friends that we used to always be at yeah, sweet bar with our like, diverse ragtag crew yeah yeah so those are the two things that i think i would do what first. I would do first is I would go to the Barracuda Lounge Never and I would choice. go, right? Yeah. And I would go see a Keisha Carr show because mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. would just make me feel alive again. Alive. Yeah. And it's weird because it's like, I think I went through such a phase when I was touring where I was like, please get me away from drag. Like, I if I have a day off, I'm not going to go see a drag show. You know what I mean? Because I, yeah. I do it every day. But now I'm just at this point where, like, I would love to see Keisha do her thing. I would love to see Pixie Aventura do her thing, you know? It may, I miss drag! The way you miss live theater, I miss drag. Cause yeah, was... which one could argue is a form of live theater, yeah. I think. Because, yeah, like, those virtual drag shows, it's not the same. <laughs> it's not the same. And the same with, like, a virtual Broadway thing. Like it's Hamilton. Just, yeah, it's just not the same. Like, yes, is Hamilton, like great fun to watch on Disney Plus and do I cry? Yes, but it's not, but just imagine how heightened that would be in real life. Yeah. Know? I think there's two kinds of people in the world. There's people that cry during the song, it's quiet uptown, and people that don't. And I'm the kind that does, and I don't understand the people that don't. You I know. know what I, mean? I know. And for context, we live. Uptown. <laughs> Uptown, right near Alexander Hamilton's um, house. Yeah, so I always like picture them walking our streets. Yeah, I'm like, I understand. Yeah, yo, it's never quiet where we are. But. <laughs> <laughs> when you say where we are, you mean anywhere we are because here <laughs> we are in the Bronx. Yeah, it's also loud. Yeah, so yeah. <laughs> Update: Lin Manuel Miranda. It's not quiet uptown. <laughs> yeah, not anymore. <laughs> Adjustment. It's been so funny because a lot of people that I know have seen Hamilton for the first time on Disney Plus, mm -hmm. and they're like, "Oh my God, you're right. It's so good." I'm like, "I know, but you don't know because you haven't seen it." I know. Seen it. I know. I had the opposite. Someone was like, hmm, 
didn't live up to the hype for me. I was like, it's because you haven't seen, seen it, it in person. Right. <laughs> like, so you both, both sides. You haven't had that moment where you're worried they're going to throw a chair at your head because they're always throwing chairs around. You know what I mean? That's true. The choreography yeah, yeah. that they did. They're like moving the sets, but it's a dance at the same time. Or if you're me, it's so long that you are like, I can't go pee because I can't miss a second of this art. Right. But the first act is like, oh full two hours and 35 <laughs> minutes before intermission. Anyway, I don't know why I'm sharing that story, but it was it's, it was very difficult for me. <laughs> because if you want to know anything about us, all you have to know is Tiny Bladder. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yep. Has nothing to do with the coffee, I'm sure. <laughs> anyway, I want to dive into our serious interview for the day. But first I have a little treat for you, Caitlin. Okay. Every week we do a little segment called Here's the Good News, where we share positive stories torn from the headlines. The idea... Wait, I'm still doing the accent. (laughs) (laughs) The idea is that they'll bring you, our listeners, a little hope during these difficult times. And this week, our news is arriving just in time on a sled. An all-female team of medical professionals is saving the day in the harsh outer reaches of rural Alaska, bringing medicine to elders in need on sleds. That's right, a team including one pharmacist, one medical doctor, and two nurses traveled in one day by plane, sled, and snowmobile to deliver much-needed doses of the COVID-19 vaccine. Caitlin? Lady heroes. I love it. I'm like, I can't stop picturing dog sleds and like them leading dog sleds. I was picturing like a team of dogs, but like women, never mind. (laughs) (laughs) But women like, yeah, mushing mushing them. (laughs) (laughs) Like maybe it could be one of Maria Devana Headley's dogs, you know? According to Good Morning America, the conditions were incredibly harsh on this journey. At one point, one of the nurses had to wrap the COVID-19 vaccine in a protective envelope and put it under her coat for the ride, carrying it like a baby because the vaccine would freeze inside the needle if the frigid outdoor air touched it. So after arriving by snowmobile at their location, a local villager, not dogs, Caitlin, (laughs) pulled them the rest of the way to the rural village where the elders waited to be vaccinated. The team, which included Meredith Dean, Heather Kennison and Dr. Katrine Vanguard traveled hundreds of miles to multiple villages to deliver 65 vaccinations, a heroic feat in the conditions they faced. And they were only delivering 65, so they did all this work for just 65 people. Wow. That's 64 lives saved. 64. Why did I went out? 65 lives saved. I don't know. You know one of them's going to get it. I don't know. But one, I feel like this should be a movie. Because if there's a movie about Balto and Togo. Yes. I feel like this could be a movie. Two, these ladies, maybe they could be guests on our podcast. We should look into that. Oh my God. Right? You're so right. You guys, this is... Right? We'll, we'll, like, keep you posted. We'll try and get them on the pod. Yeah. <laughs> this is how creativity works, everybody. <laughs> Caitlin watches Good Morning America, and then it's all <laughs> uphill from there. <laughs> uh, it's, I've really turned into my mother. <laughs> I know. Yeah, but I just, I just like this story a lot, obviously, because it's a team of ladies, but it also goes to show just how far people are willing to go to try to end this horrible time in the world. And, you know, people are really going over and above and beyond to make a difference. And that makes me really happy. I know. I want to know more. Like, I want to know why those women decided to do it and why... I don't know why no men step up. No. Right. <laughs> I don't know. I just, sorry. I wanna, I'm sorry, Caitlin. <laughs> I want to, I just, I don't know. I want to know more of the story. Yeah. So, so we're speaking yeah. this into existence. We're getting yeah. them on the podcast. Having said that, my children, let's take a little break. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. 
Get in, loser. Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. <laughs> okay, we're back. Now, it's almost time for our groundbreaking interview, but I want to say this first of all. If you like your time with us today, make sure to subscribe, rate, and review. We love reviews. In fact, we love them so much, we're going to read some of our favorite reviews right here at the end of the show. So review, review, review. And uh, now it's time to talk to our next guest, Caitlin. I'm really excited about this one because I met her on the set of High Tea which right. was that yeah. review show we did for RuPaul's Drag Race UK. And since then, we've been chatting and meaning to get together, and COVID has ruined it. But now we're getting together virtually, and that's going to be just as fun, especially for you guys, because our guest today is really wonderful. Ting! <laughs> Everybody, I am so excited to introduce today Shakina Nafak. Originally from Southern California, nobody's perfect, Shakina is a performer, director, writer, producer, and social activist living in New York City. She is well known for her work as Lola on the comedy series Difficult People, Ellis in the sitcom Connecting, and as the founding artistic director of Musical Theater Factory where she has supported the development of over 100 new musicals, including her own autobiographical rock musical, Manifest Pussy. And Shakina, I'm very glad to welcome you to the She's a Woman podcast today. How are you feeling? I'm feeling great. I'm so happy to be here with you, Cracker. Oh, I'm really glad that you're joining me, especially right now. Before we started recording, we were talking just a little bit about living in a moment of hope. Obviously, the world is far from healed, but at the time of recording, we just saw the inauguration yesterday, and it is huge. How does it make you feel? I just, I feel like I'm in a spiritual moment of restoration. Like, like I haven't fully taken that deep breath in, but my diaphragm is relaxing and my lungs are expanding and I'm starting yeah. to welcome a new breath, you know? Yeah. So I, I'm, I'm excited for the, the possibility to come. You're making me think of that moment when you take off a corset and suddenly you can have full lung capacity again. <laughs> for the first time in hours and you're just like I still have red marks all over my body but I'm there's hope for me today I can be on my way to being a normal person and I was nervous all the way through the inauguration because obviously since there's been so much unrest I just wanted everything to go through peacefully and just to have it behind us now makes me feel like a completely different person. Yeah. You know, after I got up early to watch Trump leave office and like, <laughs> yes, watched his like tacky little speech by the airplane. And, mm -hmm. and then, you know, since, uh, since I had shot connecting, I had to like pack up my uh, altar table to make room for the set that they wanted to have on the show. And right. Because I was just so like full of, depression from like you know 2020 i like never decided to like unpack that box of all my sacred mementos and put my altar back up and as soon as air force one took off with trump i went into the closet and i pulled out that box and i took all my sacred objects out and i put them back on my altar and i just felt like yes now it is time and and then for some reason when i was watching the inauguration you know, I was like worried Biden would trip, but I wasn't like concerned about it, like violence and insurrection. I just felt like we're, we're through it. We made it. And that doesn't mean that it might not, you know, rear its ugly head in the days to come. But I just like enjoyed I just enjoyed the the pomp and circumstance. And I felt that even though it was really limited because of covid, it was still kind of magical now. The reason that we deserve all of this is because we have been through everything and I ask a lot of people this question, Jakina, but you especially, bear in mind, I have seen your beautiful home and I, I hope you don't mind my asking, but do you mind telling people besides work, 
What have you been doing to stay sane over the last year? Honestly, I did as much as possible throw myself into my creative projects just to stay sane. But I also have taken a lot of pleasure in the organizing that I've been able to do, especially around the time of the George Floyd protests and into the summer of last year. It was really great to be able to bring people together and help connect folks to outlets for their rage and actually finding like creative ways to do that was really fulfilling. I'm part of a collective called the Intersectional Voices Collective. And we threw this uh, incredible Juneteenth demonstration and celebration that we hope will become a tradition here in Harlem. And also my partner is building a greenhouse in the backyard. And that's like, what I was thinking about. <laughs> yeah, I, I, was, I feel like I can't take credit for that because it's like his brainchild and his vision. But I like going down there to like help with stuff. And yeah, it's really, really impressive. Like we actually have seedlings sprouting in freezing temperatures in January. So I think by spring, it will really be abundant. And I I hope that for all of us, you know? Yeah. Your answer is so telling because I asked you, besides work, what you're doing to keep yourself sane. And you mentioned so many incredible other avenues of work that you're involved in. And <laughs> it is It's just so you. And as we go through the interview today, I think our listeners will see that you just, every time you see an opportunity to work and make something appear, to make something manifest, you really, really do it. But part of this podcast for me is being able to tell the stories of incredible women, incredible people from the very beginning. And you once told me that you wanted to be the first trans actress in a major network sitcom. And you got there, but I want to know, where did the dream begin? Did you know you wanted to perform when you were really young? Yeah, you know, I did. I was like a performer from, I don't know, like third grade was when I did my first school play. And And I knew that's what I wanted to do. But in high school, things kind of went awry. And I think like part of it was the onset of puberty and gender dysphoria in a time, you know, when we didn't have the language to understand like identities. And so I was like in the process of coming out as gay in a really conservative, like Orange County, California was terrible at the time. And yeah. Um, so the, the really conservative environment and, and that wasn't going great, <laughs> but also it wasn't entirely accurate either, you know? And, right. um, and so I just stopped seeing myself on stage. Like I just didn't see how it could ever happen, you know, how I could ever be the person I wanted to be on stage. And for me, you know, drag didn't feel right. I had, I had tried drag performance in college and was like, you know, I consider myself at the time a a trans performance artist, a transgender performance artist. Right. Uh, but, you know, the issue was that, like, when the wig and the makeup came off, like, I felt like I was losing a part of myself. And so I just didn't understand how to create, like, a a unity as opposed to, like, a bifurcation in my identity. And, um, and so I, I focused for several years on developing my craft as a director, thinking that's probably where I would end up. And if I couldn't, like, be it, I would just make it. And then, but I was also doing like avant-garde performance art just to like get out my, my spirit, you know? And I, yeah. I this dance form um, uh, called Buto that I studied with Diego Pinon, who's the founder of Body Ritual Movement. So I was doing a lot of like avant-garde performance art where it's like covering myself in mud and like rolling around in the gutter and things like that. And, and it was like this really great, like physical protest, but it wasn't, I still wasn't accessing the being you know, that I wanted to be. And so it wasn't until I started my transition that the opportunity to become a performer really became available to me again. As I'm hearing you talk about this moment where you didn't feel there was a place for you, is that one of the reasons that you feel it's so important for you to be that trans performer on a major network sitcom so that young people who are going through their own process of realizing themselves have someone to look to and feel like they have a place? Yeah, exactly. You know, when in my very first solo show, One Woman Show, which I did when I was crowdfunding for my gender confirmation, right. I talked about being institutionalized when I was a teenager, mostly because no one knew what to do with me. And there was a time that was right when Ellen DeGeneres had her own show, Ellen, the sitcom. And she had this like big, like groundbreaking 
episode where she came out of the closet. I remember like being like in this mental institution, like already having been out of the closet for like a couple of years as a queer teenager, seeing all this press around Ellen and just being like, wow, Ellen, you're so brave. And I know there were a lot of career risks for her at the time and I'm not like shading her, but as a teenager, I was like, you don't know anything about risk, like compared to where I'm at, you know? And, um, and so uh, later on when like, I remember, you know, Will and Grace happening and, and, and the kind of breath of fresh but racist air that brought into television, I was like, you know, there are like, there are, there are avenues by which the, the like network sitcom is like the cornerstone of family comedy, you know, and it's just something like comfortable and accessible. And so there was a time after I created MTF and, and moved out of the porn studio where we can talk about that later. Yeah, um, exactly. Living in a, in a convent, basically in a Catholic home for women uh, in Hell's Kitchen and um, and I was praying um, to St. Joseph because that was the patron saint of this uh, home, St. Joseph's home. Uh, I was like, I want to be, you know, a, a major uh, star on a major network comedy sitcom. And that's like what I was just putting that into the universe because I thought like, A, it would be nice to have like career sustainability and those contracts can last like years and years and years. Unfortunately, mine only lasted eight episodes this time, but you know, baby steps. And then also because, yeah, like why not be a beacon, you know, for other folks to know what's possible for them, for yeah, for trans young people and trans people of all ages to be like, wow, you can be the person you want to be and you can go after that brass ring. After fun. this period of high school, you attended University of California, Santa Cruz, where you received a BA in community studies with a minor in theater arts, as well as a graduate certificate in theater arts. You went on to pursue an MFA in experimental choreography, a PhD in critical dance studies at University of California, Riverside. What was taking shape in you as you pursued all of these studies? What was going on? Yeah, you know, I think I was just trying to heal myself and like support myself at the same time. And I was trying to make sense of my body and I was using my creative work to do that. And I was, and I was intellectually curious about what that process was. So, so I wanted to be able to think about it critically while I was going through it and making work about it. And then because my teacher was, you know, a Mexican man and I was like, found myself as this like queer white Jewish American going to rural Mexico to study ritual dance, I was like, well, let me also investigate the political problematics of this relationship because there was so much at stake. And I knew I didn't have the tools to really unpack that. And so I remember being in this little town, Tlapohawa, in in the state of Michoacan, and I was like, God, someone should write a book about this. It's just so brilliant what's happening here. And then I was like, well, no one is going to write a book about this. So I guess I have to write a book about this. Yeah. That's what compelled me to apply to graduate school. And, you know, at the time I thought that I needed a PhD to become a, an artistic director of a company. I don't know where that got like in my mind, but I just felt like, because I had like dropped out of so many high schools, I had something to prove. And even when I learned that like, oh, this path is probably not the path that I need to be on to do what I want to do. I also had it in me that I am now a person who finishes what I start. And so I just like vowed to see it through. And it was really, really challenging, you know, emotionally and physically and mentally and all the things. But but it was so much about, you know, documenting and critiquing the processes that I was going through in order to heal myself and express myself. It seems like you are really guided by your curiosity. You really encourage that in other people. I was wondering if you could talk about the importance of curiosity to you and just letting it take you where it wants to go. That's so interesting. I just, I wonder about a lot of things. You know, I have a really active imagination and um, and I'm really intrigued by the process of discovery, whether that's self-discovery or creative discovery or collaborative discovery. I think that we are in such a capitalist-driven, product-focused society that we don't often give ourselves the chance to ruminate and explore. 
but that's where all great innovation comes from, I think. At least I've right. experienced in my art making. Yeah, I just, it's funny because like uh, I teach from time to time at the National Theater Institute in Connecticut and at NYU as well. And I, I sometimes view like my only real job as teaching young people how to make believe because I feel like, especially now that public education just doesn't have room for arts, that there are really important faculties we develop when we feed our imagination. And if you can do that work alongside the work of social and political critique, if you can think critically while you're also being imaginative and not necessarily censor yourself, but just be able to engage in a process of evaluation as you go, you know, kind of like the scientific method for artists, then you can really hold yourself to account in the adventure of making art. Yeah, you look at the adventure of making art in a lot of different ways. I Now you're talking about it as a kind of science, and you've also looked at art making as factory work, but in a happy way. Everything you're saying is a perfect lead-in to talk about the musical theater factory. You founded something called the Musical Theater Factory, where musical theater creators basically get their imagination fueled, and they get what they need to create. And it was kind of based on a dream you had as a kid looking at factories. And I was wondering if you could talk about the Musical Theater Factory and how it got started and what you want it to do. Yeah, it's so true. I used to like drive around downtown LA and see all these abandoned warehouses and think about Tin Pan Alley and just think like one day I want a factory that makes nothing but musicals. You could like go into one room and there's people rehearsing at a piano and then the next room and there's like choreography rehearsals happening. And um, so I had this uh, friend from college who uh, your listeners, if they watch like hardcore gay bareback porn might know as Owen Hawke. Uh, founder of Dark Alley Media. And back at, in the mid-2010s, Dark Alley Media was based in this warehouse on 40th Street between Port Authority and Times Square. And when they had 18 months left on the lease, Owen was like, why don't you just uh, take a key and like do something in this space? And I was like, if you're serious, I will build a theater here and I will make it for the musicals. And so, you know, using some like funding from the sale of fisting porn, we were able to build this black box theater that was entirely, you know, built by a team of musical theater making volunteers. And we had all these meetings about like, well, what is what does the industry need? What do the artists need? How can we create programming that actually serves the artists? And at this point, there there was really no money to program anything. So it was all about volunteerism and working on each other's work. And and one thing that I really believed in was this idea of collaborative feedback and peer evaluation, because I had come through an academic arena in which like your work is only valid if it's being critiqued by your colleagues. And and I was also like, I've seen a lot of writers kind of get lazy with early drafts of things and feel like their work was done. And I knew it wasn't done because I'd, I'd been through the rigorous process of, you know, writing a dissertation. And I know what revision is. At the same time, I was like beginning my gender transition. And so I chose the acronym MTF for Musical Theater Factory, but also just like for what I was going through as a, as a yeah. human transitioning, quote unquote, male to female, to use like a clinical term. Right. And I would just like, let me like make this space, the space where I make sense of things for the time being. I invited all my friends to become a part of it. And we had like a writer's group and we had showcases of new work and salons all in the back of this porn studio that I was also living in with like, you know, no heat on the weekends or nighttime. Right. You know, it was just very like rent, very like what you think. What I, I was going to say, it's that, yeah. that New York rent moment. Exactly. And then, you know, what happened was I got the money I needed for my gender confirmation. I went and had my surgery. I created an, another show about that. And I was really like, wow, I'm discovering performing in a new way for myself. And that feels like where I want to put my energy, but I've just built this empire of new musical making. And I no longer feel drawn to being an artistic director. And also when we decided that we would try to keep the company alive after those first 18 months of the lease, then it was like, all right, what do we have to do to make this organization sustainable, to bring a new creative leadership so that I could leave it behind. And, you know, we, developed a succession plan to, to, you know, bring in general manager and find the new artistic director. 
And I built a board of directors and thankfully Playwrights Horizons took us on as a resident company, which gave us a new space downtown. But also the organization had gotten really popular really quick, which is the way that theater companies work in New York. Like we were the hot new thing for a minute. That meant that a lot of people wanted to participate, which was so great. The question of the ethics around volunteerism changed when we started needing to like, you know, work with the unions and decided we wanted to pay people for their labor. And also the distribution of opportunity became a question because I didn't want to, you know, create an environment that was, for lack of a more nuanced term, white supremacist. I, as like a, a, a trans person, was really mindful of the radical nature of representing myself and, and my story in musical theater, which had not really happened. And I had brought in Michael R. Jackson into our first writers group who was working on A Strange Loop, which I knew would be iconic. But as I started looking at the applications for people who were submitting to our programs and the people who were showing up, it was just really skewing, you know, to a certain demographic that I didn't feel accurately represented New York City, nor the, the face of Broadway that I wanted to see in the years to come. And so we made a decision um, at every level of the company through like a, through, um, you know, our community meetings and also on the board of directors that we were going to decenter whiteness and, and achieve gender parity and, at all levels of our programming. And so this was like in 2014, like, you know, pretty far ahead of the conversations that most arts organizations are really stressing about now. And so that happened over time and the mission of the company changed over time. And then when we brought in Mayan Tiu, who's the new artistic director, she, you know, really lifted up the goal of centering work by uh, artists of color and trans artists. So uh, now that's what we see MTF serving is largely focused on serving writers of color, early career writers of color who are developing new musicals that really sh- shift and challenge the form. And of course, yeah. trans writers as well. Yeah, I think you really believe in the power of theater and musical theater to tell people's individual stories um, yeah. in a way that nothing else can. And not only do you support musical theater creators, but you are one yourself. You created Manifest Pussy, the story of your life framed by your trip to Thailand for your gender confirmation. Mm-hmm. And I've seen of much of it as I can. It's spare and raw and personal, and it's all you owning the stage. I like to say it's like Hedwig, but real. Exactly. It's <laughs> fr- told by the person who should tell the story. I wondered if you could talk about how Manifest Pussy came about. Yeah. Well, when I began my transition, uh, I was already, you know, part of the New York City theater community and really trying to establish myself at the time as a, as a director. I had gotten a few exciting fellowships and I also had seen that there was no one else like me in the community. And I had overheard conversations about trans folks that made me feel like I, I wouldn't exactly be welcome if I stepped forward into my truth. And so I thought, let me just create a show that preemptively answers every question so I can like explain to people on my own terms why I'm about to do what I'm about to do. And that was the show, One Woman Show. And I performed that at Joe's Pub on my 33rd birthday and was like, it was also my like, you know, triumphant return to the stage after more than a decade. And when I got back from Thailand, I created a second show because it was a year long healing process. And I was like, I don't know how I'm gonna get through this fucking year. So let me like create a show about my time in Thailand and that will, and I'll perform it on the one year anniversary of my surgery. And that will sort of be the victory of like getting through it. And so I did that. And then once I did that, I realized, wow, the real show is the combination of those two things, the origin story and the transformation story. And how can I sort of weave those together? And I was contemplating that when HB2 was passed in North Carolina, which was the first statewide bill that like banned trans people from using public restrooms and a lot of other, um, you know, factors of public life. And I was like, seeing how there were all these boycotts being called for North Carolina. Bruce Springsteen wasn't going there. They were stopping the tour of Wicked and West Side Story. And I was like, these are people in shows that actually talk about the need to embrace difference and we're like out of a community that needs these stories now more than ever so i decided to smash those shows together create manifest pussy and take a band on tour to north carolina to perform my show in a bunch of alternative venues and just like get out there and be like a cheerleader for the people who are feeling really violated by this political action yeah that's how the show came to be it's like it's you know monologues and sort of spoken word from that I've, i've written along with 
some lyrics that I've written and some lyrics that other writers contributed and 10 different composers, you know, created original songs for it. It's on on my YouTube if, if folks want to watch it. It's an incredible show. And I wanted to know how it felt to take it into territory that was supposed to be hostile. Like, what was the audience reaction? I have some visuals of you doing the show in the same room as a, like, skateboard. I'm too gay to even know what a skateboard, is it called a skateboard rink? Ramp, yeah. Ramp. (laughs) Yeah, it was amazing. You know, people were really angry and hurt and, like, I remember when I was living in California and Proposition 8 passed the same election that Obama won. And so it was like everyone was celebrating Obama's victory except for gay people who lost the right to marry. And and when this happened in North Carolina, I thought about that and how alone I felt in my own state and how I, I wish there had been this queer cheerleader who just like flew in to give me hope. And so... So that's what I wanted to be for those folks. And I mean, I'm not on the ground there doing the organizing every day, but I could come and like bring a little bit of joy for a minute and like hold a space of healing. So yeah, our first show was at this metal club in um, Wilmington, I believe. And there was like a half pipe. There were people skating like during the show. Afterwards, a soldier, because it's like a really like a military area, a soldier came up to me and was like, when I enlisted, I signed up to defend all freedoms. And that was his way of sort of telling me that he supported my right to like be who I am, you know, and, and, and trans people to be who they are. And I thought that was so beautiful. The thing that happened that was really crazy is that after that first night, the Pulse nightclub shooting happened. Actually, the, the same night as my first performance. And oh my God. What, what happened after that is that I had this tour booked in a time where people were already nervous for my safety going on the road in North Carolina. And I made the decision to keep going with the tour. And then the shows really became like vigil places, like people who were really just seeking queer community came out and right. I had an extra song at the end in honor of the victims of the Pulse nightclub shooting and just kind of held space. And because the show is so autobiographical and raw and open, it always does this thing where people feel like they can just tell me anything afterwards because I've literally shared my whole life and pussy with them. So then I would just hang out after the shows and just listen to people and talk to people and hear their stories. And it was, it was really like a a church service almost. And uh, it was kind of, you know, perfect. And I feel like I I felt like it's one of those experiences that you have where you're like, wow, everything I've done in my life in all different capacities has trained me to be ready for this. You have this entire life of theater and activism, but you also have a chapter of your life on television and it's not there's not a harsh line between them because in the much loved series difficult people you play lola the trans truther militant activist in a way she represents a part of you i wondered what it was like to be able to write and play a side of yourself like this on tv well, you know, it's just like the brilliance of Julie Klausner and Scott King who created that role. They knew they wanted this confrontational trans woman to be a foil for Billy Eichner's character because Gabby Sidibe, who played the owner of the cafe, she had booked American Horror Story. She was doing Coven. And so she was no longer available to do as many episodes. And so they were like, well, who else can Billy like be intimidated by? You know, Billy Eichner is a pretty big personality. And they were like, we know a trans woman, like <laughs> he won't know what to yes. say. And, um, and you know, the fact is that, yeah, she's like a truther and a conspiracy theorist. And like, in some ways I am as well. And so when, when they found me, you know, it was a real perfect fit. I auditioned for it, but then my callback was actually a hour long meeting with the writers followed by a table read of two episodes in front of network execs. So it was like already like jumping full in, which was so terrifying and cool. And, um, yeah, I just, it, similar to connecting, I got to bring my whole self to it. I got, I, I wrote like a, I was a consultant on the show. So I, I wrote a sort of um, a document on like hot button issues in the trans community, kind of outlining some ideas that I would love to see addressed uh, by the character and sent those to the writers. And then they found ways to kind of work them in. And then I also got to write a couple of my own jokes. Like the one I'm like the most proud of is when I'm like dressed up to hang out with my trans sisters. And I had said that like in season three, I wanted to bring more trans women onto the show. And Billy has a line like, oh, you have a hot date. And I say something to the effect of, we're not all out here trying to trick Dave Chappelle into fucking us. (laughs) (laughs) Because 
Because Dave Chappelle had, you know, these comedy specials, one after the other after the other, where right. he's making fun of trans women, uh, you know, whose only goal in his mind is to trick straight men into sex. And Difficult People was a show where we had the gloves off in terms of celebrity critique. You know, we were like calling out Kevin Spacey years before anyone else called out Kevin Spacey. And so for me to be able to shoot back, you know, it, not just personally, but like in my show uh, and feel backed by my show and my network, you know, in that way, what felt really powerful. And it's a small thing, but it's like, you know, a, it's kind of like shots fired. And I, I love that. You talked about another experience that was very much about healing. You were in the musicale finale of Transparent. I felt you were the linchpin of the show. Can you talk about stepping into the role that you stepped in, stepping into the role of uh, a character that had just passed away um, in this kind of dreamlike reflection of that character. Yeah, you know, that was another one of those things where I felt like everything in my life lined up to make me ready for it. I was I brought into the show, I mean, again, I, I auditioned, and then I actually invited Joey Soloway and the cast to Musical Theater Factory where we did a week-long workshop in, like, my space, which was so cool. And we, like, worked on the musical material, and we were, like, trying to figure out what the story could be. And then I said to Joey afterwards, I was like, look, I, I love this and I, I love everyone here. If I can be of service as a, a writer or producer, I'd love to be part of it in that way too. And they invited me on. So I was really involved in like a lot of different levels of production on that piece. And, you know, the one thing I knew is that I felt like this was a chance to do justice to the role of Mora, who had, the, the role had been critiqued because it was being played by a cis man and that was a decision that the team made at the time and whatever it worked for the show. Um, but then, you know, he was fired for inappropriate behavior and it was sort of like, well, that wouldn't have happened if you had a trans woman in there from the beginning, you know? And, right. um, and so it was a chance to sort of like um, fill her shoes, you know, um, with some kind of authenticity. Um, the character that I played, you know, was not a direct replacement of Mora. She was just like a weed dealer who befriends Judith Light's character, Shelley, and then Shelley, who's, you know, in her grieving process um, after Maura's death, decides to write a musical about her family, and she casts me as Maura. So I'm like the dream Maura, you know, but in yep. one really beautiful scene where Gabby Hoffman's character, Ari's, um, uh, having like a really intense high, uh, they envision a conversation with their parent to sort of like lay to rest the the trauma between them, um, which I think was like really, you know, about Joey Soloway, like resolving that trauma with their parents, you know? And right. so I was like, I was um, an avatar for many people's healing, you know, in yeah. that process. And I was aware that there were just tons of projections being slapped upon me. And I was like, okay, I will carry those. Like, let me bring them to set. Let me work with that. And in the, the end of the film, when I sing this beautiful song, Your Shoes, I sing to, to Judith Light, I was just aware of like, you know, in, in theater and in TV, like you, you really fall in love with your coworkers and you create a, a family. And to lose a scene partner that you've dealt with so much intimacy and personal feelings and, you know, spent so much time collaborating and creating with is really painful. And, and so when I sat on that bed with her and sang the song, I was just like, let me help you heal not only my character and her character but also like me and judith and yeah and it was really beautiful i'm, I'm just really you know the the piece is like a acid trip of a movie musical doesn't always make sense and it's sort of like really far out there but it's also really true to the spirit of of that show um which i think is remarkable and uh yeah i got to make a movie musical that's like the dream now we talked earlier about you vowing, praying, determining to become a trans actress in a major network sitcom. And <laughs> last year, it came to pass. Yeah. And in conversation with B, you said, well, I should have been a little more specific <laughs> because the circumstances could have been better. So you end up filming this sitcom, Connecting, in your apartment. Yeah. Can you talk about what that experience was like having this huge dream unfold like in your living room? 
I mean, it was, it's just so iconic in the way that like, careful what you wish for, you know, and like, right. be specific. I mean, at one hand, again, the world was in trauma, people were reeling, and I felt called to duty. I was like, yes, I will show up and I will make people laugh. I will help people get through it. So connecting was uh, always intended to be a a work from home comedy. It um, was written and created in the time of COVID-19 and was intended to, you know, for the actors to be able to shoot from home, to avoid exposure and endangering anybody else. So it was me and, and my partner, Daniel, here turning our living room of our basically studio apartment into a set. And mostly I had to do my own hair and makeup and lighting and set decoration and everything. Thankfully, I was able to send my wigs out once a week to the Penny Bear who just lives up the block and yeah. uh, reset because I was just so overwhelmed with like how to do everything. Yeah, it, it was it was crazy because the world was really in trauma and I felt called upon to rise up and bring some joy. And and so I said, yes, like let's let's do it. Let's figure out how to do it. And it was really crazy to have a show, like to get cast in a show, to film the entire show, to have the show premiere and then get canceled without leaving my house. It was really challenging and really fun. And I learned a lot and I loved everyone that I worked with. It's just, you know, it's a shame that we didn't get to do at least a second season because there was so much we could have continued commenting on, but. Oh, uh, absolutely. You know, uh, it's there and it will, and it will always exist. And, and now I've sort of broken through the seal, you know, like Hollywood now considers me an actress worthy of a series regular role on a on a major network sitcom. And so even if yeah. the first one I got was only for eight episodes, it came at such a critical time and happened in such a unique way. I can feel proud of that and also ready for the next. You are such an activist and such an educator. I don't want to put the burden of education on you, but let's say there's someone listening to this podcast who's just learning through you and through this podcast about the trans community what is something that they can do today to start educating themselves and start opening their eyes? That's a great question. I think a few things y'all can watch the documentary Disclosure on Netflix that talks about the history of trans representation in film and television because you get to hear trans people talk about the way trans people have been portrayed and what that means to them and how that's changing. I think you can find some trans folks to follow on your favorite social media app because there's nothing like just hearing from the lived experience of folks to understand what their life is like. Not a lot of people read books anymore, but um, <laughs> yeah. Daniel Mock has two incredible books out, um, uh, Redefining Realness. And then also Kate Bornstein has a couple incredible books, My Gender Workbook, which is actually an interactive guide to exploring your own gender and understanding gender theory in a real fun, like Cosmo quiz sort of way. And then she also has Gender Outlaw, which is like her life story. Those are some great resources. A last thing that I want to ask you, or one of the last things I want to ask you is if you could tell your younger self something that you wish you had known, what's something that you would tell yourself that you think would make a a big difference? You know, I often wish that I had followed my impulse to transition earlier in life when I knew that was my truth. I guess I would tell myself to try to be less afraid and if I couldn't, to walk into the fear anyway. Speaking of which, I'd love to like shout out one more thing that your listeners can explore if they're interested in. Please. Um, so I also have, uh, aside from Manifest Pussy, which is sort of like my life story, I also wrote this play called Chonbury International Hotel and Butterfly Club that was really like a love letter to all the incredible people I met while I was in Thailand, including a bunch of different trans folks from around the world and Thai healthcare workers and sex care workers and hospitality workers. And the play was supposed to have its premiere at Williamstown Theater Festival last summer, but of course was canceled because of COVID. Right. Uh, but I was able to, through a partnership with Williamstown, record the play for Audible. And then it came out right at the end of the year, at the, at December 29th. So it's like fresh and new and out on Audible. And it has like nine trans actors in it. And it's a really sort of delightful and dramatic journey through the cycle of becoming. And I just invite your listeners to check that out. I'm so glad you said that because I was about to say what's a way that people can support you right now. So please, listeners, check that out. 
check out everything that Shakina has done because she has done so much. It's just wild. And it really, I really want to say that you genuinely inspire me because I feel like my skeleton all became one piece over 2020. I just sort of like became a statue. And in this process of looking at your life and how you have confronted everything head on and turned your fears and curiosities into amazing work. I just like, it's been such an inspiring journey. Well, that was a really great interview. I have loved Shakina ever since we first got to meet her on the set of High Tea, my RuPaul's Drag Race UK review show. And it's just an honor to have her here with us today. But having said that, Caitlin, it's time for us to take a little break. This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. An unlikely friendship begins in the Paramount Plus original movie, Little Wing, starring Brooklyn Prince with Kelly Riley and Brian Cox. Reeling from her parents' divorce, Caitlin steals a valuable bird to save her home, but instead forms a bond with the owner, leading to a new outlook on life. Little Wing, now streaming exclusively on Paramount Plus. Head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Rated PG-13. Okay, we are back. All right, now I want to say this. If you liked your time with us today, make sure to subscribe, rate, and review. We love reviews. In fact, we love them so much, we're going to read some of our favorite reviews right here at the end of the show. Caitlin, do you have a favorite review from this week? I do. I have one that I like. Incredible, as I expected. Not surprised at all about how much the first episode delivered. I knew I was right for making Ms. Cracker my cat's namesake. Can't wait for more. You know, I feel like we're really reaching the right demographic, pet people. Yeah, I like that one because now I'm picturing a little cat running around (laughs) called Ms. Cracker. And I just love that. DM us some cat pictures of Ms. Cracker the cat. Let it be said (laughs) to this reviewer and generally, if you have pictures of your pets... We want to see them, yeah, and we accept them. them. Yeah. yeah, we accept them all the time on Instagram, on our DMs, and uh, they really make our life joyful because the world is still mostly over. And yeah, and we're the only two people left that don't have our own pets. Exactly. Oh my so, God, we are. Yeah, we need to live vicariously through other people's pet photos. <laughs> but enough about that, Caitlin. It is time for my favorite part of the podcast. It's time. For the credits. <laughs> Interesting <laughs> part to be your favorite part. I know, because it always makes me feel so official. <laughs> now, this podcast was produced by Caitlin Gretham, who's right here. And then I did it. The cast includes me and also Caitlin. And it is distributed by the amazing Studio 71. So thank you for joining us today. Make sure to tune in next Monday for another exciting episode. And remember... If you ever feel down, all you have to do is look in the mirror and say, She's a woman! And I'll be with you.